Hi, this is Dr. Jakob Weinstein, author of Torah from Narnia. You're listening to Pints with Jack. There are no ordinary people. It is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. This is Pints with Jack, Season 6, Episode 47. No Ordinary People. After Hours with Dr. Joel Heck. Welcome everyone. Here on Pints with Jack, we're reading our way through the works of C.S. Lewis, and this month we are wrapping up Season 6. Today's episode quotation comes from the last part of The Weight of Glory, both the book and the address. And it was the inspiration for the title of a recently published work by today's guest, Dr. Joel Heck. And even though we've been doing this show now for years, there are still so many people I can't believe we haven't yet had on the show. And one such person is Dr. Heck, making this uh, a very long overdue appearance on Pints with Jack. In today's episode, we're going to hear about Dr. Heck's career, his research, and the different books that he's authored, including one very important scholarly resource that he's worked on called Chronologically Lewis. But first, a little bit about our guest. Dr. Joel Heck is currently serving as the interim president for Concordia Lutheran Seminary, and he is a retired pastor and professor and former executive editor of Concordia University Press. He is the mind behind the Chronologically Lewis Project, and he is the author or editor of 16 books, including No Ordinary People, 21 Friendships of C.S. Lewis. Dr. Joel Heck, welcome to Pints with Jack. Thank you. It's great to be with you today. Well, as I said, this is long overdue, so greetings from Wisconsin, a state that I believe you have roots in, isn't that right? Some very significant roots, lived there for more than a decade, decade and a half, roughly. Wonderful. Well, in honor of that, for today's toast, I'm drinking a local beer, New Glarus's Spotted Cow. Do you have anything to drink? Uh, I'm a coffee drinker, so bottoms up with coffee. That'll do. I would much rather be sharing a pint of Guinness at the Eagle and Child, but uh, <laughs> I guess the Eagle and Child is closed for renovation from what I hear. Yes, for a very worryingly long period of time. So let's toast to its restoration. Cheers. Cheers. So to kick things off, would you tell us a little bit about your own personal history and your work with C.S. Lewis? Back in 1995, I had the opportunity to teach in London, England, a northern suburb of London at Oak Hill College, which is a theological college, seminary of the Church of England. And I went there masquerading as a C.S. Lewis scholar because I had to have a couple of classes that were cross-listed, and my discipline is theology, so I put together a prospectus that was impressive enough to get selected to the program. And I taught a history of Great Britain while I was there, but the other course was C.S. Lewis, cross-listed between theology and uh, English literature. During my next visit to England, I spent a sabbatical in Oxford, working a little bit with Walter Hooper on volume three of Collected Letters. I did some uh, transcribing of a few letters, and though this is not very well known, I was the one who talked him into including the Great War letters that he wrote to Owen Barfield. He wasn't planning on including them, and I found out from a 
a scholar of New College that he wasn't doing that. And so I approached Walter and asked him, would he consider that? They said, well, uh, that's a lot of work, but if you will do the transcription, I will include them. And so I did the transcription, very, very busy last two weeks, and he included them. So my uh, history ever since then, I, I have been growing into a legitimate Lewis scholar instead of a masquerading one. And uh, over the course of the years, I've uh, published or reprinted six different books on Lewis. Two of them are reprints, one, The Personal Heresy, and the other is the Socratic Digest, two very seldom read publications that Jack had a significant part of. And I've written and published 42 articles about Lewis. The last two articles uh, have now been published. One is on three of Jack's tutors, Arthur Poynton, E.F. Carrot, and George Stevenson. So one on ancient history, one on philosophy, and one on English literature. And uh, the most recent one is an article that's published in CSL, which is about Albert Lewis, a lot of his life. And some actually, he wrote a little bit, wrote a fabulous little story that he drew on his legal experience as a solicitor in the English courts, in the, actually the Irish courts, because he was living in Northern Ireland. So that's Jack's father, who was uh, very much at odds with his two sons during much of his lifetime, but whom Jack and Warren both described as a tremendous personality. So that's the very last article that I had published, just came out. And uh, maybe the la latest book is worth mentioning. The Lewis Company is very careful about copyright, and so they jealously guard copyright, especially around the Chronicles of Narnia. My daughter and I co-authored a book called The Lion That Roared in the tradition of Narnia. It does not quote Narnia. It doesn't use any of the names of any of the characters. So it's built upon the, the Narnian Chronicles. And I suppose we wrote it, first of all, for her children, because they are the three children in the story, but also for those that wish there were more Chronicles of Narnia. Well, this doesn't quite measure up to the same level as any of the seven Chronicles of Narnia, but for those that are interested or love the Chronicles, you might enjoy reading The Lion That Roared. Implication in the title, of course, is that the lion is Aslan, though we never say that in the book. <laughs> no. I was expecting you to say that he was a tiger, not a lion, and called Aslam, not Aslan, and from the land of Barmia. Utterly different. <laughs> yes. You mentioned volume three of Lewis's letters, clearly the most popular volume. What was it like working with Walter Hooper? It was uh, kind of boring work, but I did enjoy looking at Lewis's handwriting from uh, later in life. I just did the transcription and gave him both uh, an electronic copy plus uh, returned the copies that I was working with. I did enjoy uh, some time in his apartment. And in fact, I have a PowerPoint on my website that contains photographs of his apartment that had previously been lived in by Graham Greene, the British author. So we were there the, the night that the flat was dedicated by his local parish priest and uh, spent an evening on another occasion with Priscilla Tolkien, believe it or not. So we had a delightful evening getting to know uh, J.R. Tolkien's youngest daughter. So working with Walter, it was a, a pleasure. Walter's such a gentleman, such a, a good scholar, and uh, the world is poor 
for the loss of Walter Hooper, but grateful for the legacy that he left behind with all of the works of Lewis that he he collected, he gathered together, he put together essays and poems and various books and got them published and other books got reprinted with a little bit of arm twisting by Walter of the various publishers that <laughs> didn't exactly want to reprint what Hooper wanted, but nevertheless, they weren't going to get the newest volume of poems or essays that Walter had put together unless they agreed to reprint another one of his books that had gone out of print. So Walter is one of the main reasons why Lewis is so popular. I mean, not as important as Lewis's own skill in writing and his astute theological mind, but uh, he brought about a renaissance of Lewis's writings, and we owe him a great deal. I think I counted once that I had 19 books on my bookshelves that had the name Walter Hooper as author or editor. Yeah, that does sound about right. Well, we'll definitely talk about your website at the end of the episode, because I do want people to check it out. I've had a look at those pictures, and they are wonderful. But regarding the Great War letters between Owen Barfield and C.S. Lewis, as they talk about philosophy, why was Walter resistant to include them? Is it just because they're so impenetrable and difficult to understand? I'm guessing that's the case. He never specifically said why he wasn't going to include them, but I tried to read through some of them. Of course, I had to read them to some extent in order to transcribe them. But this is really dense philosophical writing, and it's Lewis responding to Barfield. We do not have the letters that Barfield wrote, so we don't know exactly what Barfield said or challenged to which Lewis was responding. So we're a little bit in the dark because of the lack of the Barfield side, but also because of the, the dense philosophical nature of these great war letters. We're not exactly sure even in some cases exactly which letter came in which order and what the date of any given letter was, but some other scholars have pieced together as much as possible uh, good guesses where we don't know for certain. Hmm. Well, let's talk about some of your Lewis-related books. You've written one about education called Irrigating Deserts, which I believe is a reference from Abolition of Man. Yes, it is. Would you mind telling us a little bit about it? Yes, I love that quote. The task of the modern educator is not to cut down jungles, but to irrigate deserts. Lewis was an educator, but up to that point, no books had really been written about Lewis as an educator. And I was serving as an educator. I was a, a vice president of academic services. And I thought that would be a good topic to pick up to locate references to teaching and education and his writings and pull them together into Lewis's philosophy of education, how he himself was educated, what kind of an educator he was, how he taught, how he lectured, how he tutored students in his rooms and put that together into the book, Irrigating Deserts bit of a tedious practice. Uh, Mark Pike, a little bit later on, a few years later, from the University of Leeds, wrote uh, an excellent book about Lewis as educator. But up until that time, until the time my book came out, there was nothing really written on Lewis looking at him as an educator, which, of course, he was for pretty much his entire professional life. Hmm. What are some of the things that you talk about in the book? Well, he's probably the most popular lecturer at the university. Students attended his lectures in droves, and he tells the story of sometimes where he had to 
leave a small lecture hall because so many people were there. It isn't the way it started out because he only had about two people who attended his very first lecture as a young Oxford Don in 1925. I talked about his preference for primary literature rather than secondary literature. So his students, he wanted to read the original text and come to their own conclusions about this particular author from English history, rather than simply relying upon the critics. Talk a little bit about a colleague in the English faculty at Cambridge University who had a very different perspective on literature and uh, was a critic of literature, didn't like almost anything and everything in English literature with a few select uh, possibilities or a few select choices, largely because he was writing from a non-Christian, almost an anti-Christian perspective and didn't like the Christian perspective that a lot of English authors from history brought to their writing. So he responded to those criticisms of English literature and offered his own philosophy, talked about the importance of diving deeply into a given area of study as opposed to the American system of education where liberal arts education, you get a smattering of math and English and science and theology and history and philosophy, but never really go deep into anything. Very much an advocate of the English educational system. And in 2008, you were involved in the editing of A Personal Heresy. Would you mind telling us about that work and your role in bringing it to print? Personal Heresy started with a, an essay that Lewis had published in one of the English journals. I think it was English Studies, if I remember correctly, in response to a position held by E.M.W. Tilliard of Cambridge University. He wrote a book called Milton. And he thought that the writings of John Milton were really more a reflection of Milton's personality and his character rather than the subject matter that he was writing about, including books like Paradise Lost. So a mm. major uh, epic in the history of English literature. Lewis disagreed with that vehemently, and he called it the personal heresy, that a piece of writing is far more about what the subject matter the author is dealing with than it is about the author himself. And so they ended up writing articles back and forth. Each man wrote three articles. They concluded it with a live debate. And according to uh, hearsay, maybe, I think it was John Wayne, the English writer, W-A-I-N, not to be confused with the American actor, <laughs> attended that lecture or that debate and claimed that uh, Lewis wiped the floor with E.M.W. Tilliard, but perhaps, fortunately, there's no record of the actual debate. But the six essays were then pulled together and published in book form, uh, one after the other, so a point-counterpoint kind of a arrangement. So each author had his own place to make his case, and I thought that Lewis made the case, but it was it's a very technical work focused especially on English literature, and it's a work that people who have majored in English, taught English, might understand and appreciate, but the average person, the layperson, the non-specialist in English lit or Lewis studies wouldn't get a great deal out of it. There's some memorable quotations in it. Uh, he talks about how a piece of writing is kind of like a, a window that you look through 
rather than look at. You don't want to look at the window, look at the author. You want to see what is on the other side of the window. And he, t he talked about uh, seeing a piece of literature for what it is and what the author intends it to be, rather than something like the reader response approach to reading literature that is much more about what's in the mind of the reader than it is what's on the printed page. Hmm. So Lewis defended the objectivity of a literary account as opposed to the subjective perspective that a piece of writing is about the author's state of mind. And to an extent, I think they concluded or they agreed that it was a little bit of both. I think Lewis made his case far more powerfully and more effectively than Tillyard did. And I would agree, uh, maybe some of our listeners would too, that a, <laughs> any given writing is really more about the, the topic. The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is far more about Narnia and the adventures that the four Pevensey children had there than they are about Lewis's state of mind and what he was thinking that motivated him to write that book. Hmm. You say it's more dense. That's, this is one of, the, one of Lewis's books that I haven't read yet. Uh, we will get to it at some point on the podcast. But when I first heard about it, I thought, oh, that seems a little strange because surely knowing more about an author sheds light on their work. But uh, I think it was Dr. Downing at the Wade Center. He said it, it was, I think it was him. He said it was, it's more akin to basically trying to psychologize and look at the subconscious of the author rather than actually the text that's on the page. So we can obviously look at what an author is influenced by. That's fine, but not trying to delve into the, the secret repressed childhood memories of C.S. Lewis, uh, which are really fueling the Narnia books. Reminds me of Eric Erickson's book on a life of C.S. Lewis that psychologized Lewis's writings and tried to explain from a psychological perspective what was wrong with Lewis's head to make him write the things that he did. But I even think that some of us have done a little bit of personal heresy in looking at some of the writings of Lewis. For instance, there is a, a letter in the Screwtape Letters where Lewis writes about a woman who has smothered her son and run her son's life and been so engaged in caring for her son and not really appreciated by her son. And, and a lot of people think that that's reflecting uh, Janie Moore's mothering instinct and the way that she dealt with her two children, Patty Moore, who died in World War I, and Maureen Moore. But she was kind of that overbearing mother who was a, what we sometimes call today a helicopter parent, <laughs> just hovering around the fringes and making sure that her child doesn't do anything that she would be disappointed in. So Tilliard had something to, to offer, but I think Lewis largely carried the day. And the book was out of print at the time, so there was a need for it, even if it was only going to be read and picked up by a, a handful of people. Yeah. Well, in 2017, you wrote the story of Lewis's conversion to Christianity, but he had written about it in Surprised by Joy. So what motivated you to write a book retelling the story? Well, there are a lot of things, some of which was at the time that I wrote it, and even more so today, we knew more about the life of Lewis than we ever did. There is a fairly famous passage in Surprised by Joy where Lewis describes his conversion to theism as happening in the spring term of 1929. But both Andrew Lazo and Alistair McGrath have pretty firmly documented the fact that he got the year wrong. He had the right time of year, 
but it was 1930. And I think if you look at some of the other things in Lewis's life, when he became a Christian while riding to the Whipsnade Zoo and the sidecar of Warney's motorcycle, I uh, was a, about a year later. That wouldn't, that was in September 1931. We know that very specifically from Lewis's letters to Arthur Greaves. And so there are a lot of pieces of information that we have from Lewis's diary, Warren's diary, uh, Lewis's letters, surprised by joy. There's a little bit in the Pilgrim's Regress, which is a romantic depiction of the road that Lewis walked on his way back to the Christian church. So you pull all of these things together, and, and with the help of the chronology I'd put together, I was able to lay this out pretty much in a chronological order and try to date some of the things more specifically, including the four chess moves that Lewis describes in Surprised by Joy. And I was able to nail down the first two really quite uh, precisely because of the things he said there and in other places. So I found it as a bit of a puzzle trying to put everything together. And the book From Atheism to Christianity, the story of C.S. Lewis was the end product of that. Finally setting the timeline right. <laughs> it's funny, whenever I'm having a conversation with Andrew and we're talking about Lewis's conversion, he always brings up the misdating. He's going to love the fact that you, you've just reiterated that. <laughs> yes. Well, Andrew and I go back a few years, as you and he probably do also. Hmm. He was one of the main people to point that out. I think he, even before Alistair McGrath in his biography of Lewis. Well, if he ever gets awards for, for anything, it'll probably be for that and for never shutting up about Till We Have Faces. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he loves that book. It's a little bit like Charlie Starr and his handwriting analysis, which has been very helpful to Lewis scholars. And I'm hoping that uh, chronologically Lewis ends up being that or perhaps already is that for a lot of people that write on Lewis. Oh, yeah. Well, we'll talk about chronologically Lewis in a moment. But before that, uh, I want to talk about two more of your books. First one is No Ordinary People. And earlier when you were speaking about your articles regarding Albert, one thing that I never cease to be amazed by is the fact that everyone around Lewis was interesting. I, there, there just doesn't seem to be a dull person there. Every single scholar that I ever encounter who's digging into one particular person, uh, Dr. Crystal Hurd, she's done a lot of stuff on Albert recently, and um, also uh, Lewis's mother, Flora. And there's another scholar that's working on Dr. Havard, and it, it just seems to constantly turn up gold. Everybody seems to be a wonderful poet and an excellent writer. So I'm, I'm kind of worried for today's generation because <laughs> I don't think that's the case anymore. Um, but you wrote this book, No Ordinary People, 21 Friendships of C.S. Lewis. Remind just telling us about it. Who were these friendships that you focus on? People that are often overlooked. I decided that people like J.R. Tolkien, Dorothy Sayers, Charles Williams got a lot of attention already, but there are a lot of other people that Lewis interacted with who are really significant people, like an Austin Ferrer, who spoke at the Oxford Socratic Club more than anyone else did, at least as a formally invited speaker. Lewis most of the time responded to a keynote speaker, sometimes giving the opposite point of view and sometimes giving a confirming point of view. But in terms of invited guests, no one spoke there more often than Austin Ferrer, who some people have called uh, the greatest 20th century theologian that the Church of England has ever produced. So maybe Lewis, 
because of the context where he was working in uh, a university, a highly rated university, had a lot of friendships with people who were significant people because of the university, or maybe he was just attracted to or other people were attracted to Lewis because they had a lot in common. And I see a good deal of commonality between Lewis and many of the other people. One of his early friends during his undergraduate years was A.K. Hamilton Jenkin, who became a well-known writer dealing with his native Cornwall and almost uh, living, eating, breathing, sleeping Cornwall constantly to the point where it, it made people sick because he didn't seem to have any other topic that he was willing to talk about. <laughs> or uh, Arthur C. Clarke, mm. a science fiction writer of the 20th century who has a an orbit named after him. There is a geostationary orbit that is above the equator, and it's because he is the first person to propose using satellite technology for telecommunications, and he proposed that a couple of decades before it actually happened. So he's kind of thought of as one of the fathers of the modern space movement, especially uh, the modern movement in telecommunications. And so Clark wrote over 100 books, a lot of them science fiction books. In one case, I think it's called Childhood's End. Clark was so appreciative of what Lewis had to say about that book that he asked for permission to use Lewis's quotation in some of the publicity for the book. Clark happened to have met Joy Davidman at some point. In fact, I think it was Joy that recommended that book to Arthur Clarke. Then Lewis read it and loved it so much that he wrote about it. And that's why Clarke wanted to use that quotation to help plug his books. So he was a, a prolific author, a lover of space travel, and an atheist who locked horns with Lewis. He actually wrote to Lewis for the first time after Paralandra was published and took issue with Lewis's portrayal of scientists. And Lewis <laughs> had to write back and say he wasn't making a statement that all scientists are like uh, the scientists like Weston in Paralandra, but that if there is a an inappropriate or incorrect approach to preparing for the future, it's most likely to be dressed up in the guise of a, of a scientist. So he wasn't trying to say that all scientists are that way because there is this William Hingist who appears uh, in that hideous strength that Lewis portrays as, as really a very fine scientist. He wasn't opposed to all scientists. But that's how the thing got started and it warmed up a great deal. I think they invited one another to various lectures. Clark was uh, president of an interplanetary society in London for a couple of years. Mary Nalen, originally uh, Mary Shelley, not the same woman that wrote Frankenstein, but Mary Nalen was a student of Lewis in her undergraduate years, and she came to be a Christian largely under the influence of Lewis's personality and writing and some of the correspondence between them. So her maiden name was Shelley, but she married Daniel Nalen, if I remember correctly. People like uh, Maureen Moore, who became the eighth baronetess of a small castle in northern Scotland <laughs> and was Mrs. Moore's daughter. So Patty Moore died in the First World War, but Janie Moore had two children. And 
Maureen lived in the house that Lewis lived in, and so she knew him personally for about 20 years before she left home, went to school, got married, and then became this uh, fairly significant person, even though this baronetcy was a relatively minor position. But wrote a chapter about her, wrote a chapter about Sister Penelope that Lewis corresponded with over the years many, many times. And I think she became to Lewis sort of a female version of Walter Adams, who was a, an Anglican priest and a father confessor mm. for Lewis when he felt he needed that one-on-one -on -one time with a priest where he could come and talk about his personal struggles with temptation and sin. And she was an Anglican nun. And so he, he wrote to her some of the things that he probably said to uh, Father Adams. So she's a fascinating character, wrote a great deal herself, and first met Lewis by writing a, a letter in appreciation for his book, Out of the Silent Planet. You know, that, that space trilogy, a ransom trilogy, isn't well appreciated by a lot of Lewis readers. That Hideous Strength is a rather unusual book, but the first two <laughs> in particular, uh, a lot of people enjoy. They're much shorter, therefore, but even that Hideous Strength is a significant work, too, and we need to appreciate them as well. Hmm. Well, we've been reading throughout the Silent Planet this season, so uh, I actually specifically wanted you to talk about both Arthur C. Clarke and Sister Penelope, because these are these are two characters that we've mentioned quite often this season because the famous letter where Lewis speaks about sneaking past watchful dragons is in response to the publishing of Out of the Silent Planet, and he's writing that to Sister Penelope. Yes, and there are lots of other people. I mean, we haven't talked about even half of the 21, but I'm thinking of Alec Vidler, an Anglican theologian who became the editor of Theology, which is the publication that, that Vidler was trying to rejuvenate and ended up publishing Lewis's essay, The Weight of Glory, which you started out this hour with a quotation from The Weight of Glory, and that quotation gave its name to uh, this book with 21 different chapters on these various people that Lewis knew. It was a chapter on Warren Lewis, largely because I had written an article about Warren uh, quite some years ago, but it was worth incorporating into this book article or a chapter about Hugo Dyson, who was really quite a character, tremendous <laughs> Shakespeare scholar, able to quote Shakespeare at length, and a tremendous sense of humor, had a few funny things to say. I wish I could remember them all, but he talked about Charles Williams lecturing at Oxford University about the value of virtuous love and made the comment about Charles Williams that the man has become a common chastitute, which he sort of coined the word on the spot, I suppose. He's also the guy that got tired of Tolkien reading chapters of The Lord of the Rings. Unforgivable. <laughs> yeah, I, I think Lewis should have put him in his place, quite frankly. But Lewis uh, really honored his friends and treated them well, even if they disagreed with him. There's uh, Dom Bede Griffiths. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, he's interesting. The man who became a Catholic priest later in life, but Alan Richard Griffiths, who was a student of Lewis, taking English lit with Lewis, and Lewis calls him his chief companion on the road to Christianity. And so the two were sharing ideas and recommending books that the other one should read. 
And between the two of them, they gradually, I, I think God was a hound of heaven searching after them. In fact, Lewis describes God as kind of a hound chasing after him or an angler that's trying to catch him or as a master chessman who is calling checkmate at the end of Lewis's atheism. So the, all three of those images show up in Surprised by Joy, and, I'm, and I made a good deal of reference to that in the book From Atheism to Christianity. But uh, Griffiths, very significant character in Lewis's life, but you hardly read about them. And when you read the biographies of Lewis, when I think Harry Poe brought the biography of Lewis to a significant next step, but I'm still of the opinion that the definitive biography of Lewis has not been written yet. So I'm looking at somebody someday writing uh, three 500-page volumes on the life of Lewis <laughs> and just really incorporating massive amounts of material. Lewis is too complex a person to cover in 300, 500, 800 pages. There's just so much about him and his writings. But my focus, uh, if you if you look at some of the things that I've written, my focus has been on the biographical aspects of Lewis's life. So Andrew Lazo loves Till We Have Faces. Various people appreciate the Chronicles of Narnia. I mean, that's where that, there are more copies of the Narnian books that are sold every year than anything else. Mere Christianity is is a top ten book in Christian circles. Screw tape letters widely read and appreciated. But very few people have looked at the, the life of C.S. Lewis and tried to figure everything out. And because he wrote so much, he kept a diary for a short period of time in the 1920s. Warren Lewis kept a diary for about 70 years, maybe 60 years, from 1918 till his death in 1973. So there's a lot of material out there, plus the fact that Lewis himself was such a powerful personality that other people wrote about him and they mentioned him in their books. And so Tolkien's letters, for instance, not all of which have been published, refer to Lewis quite a number of times. And one wonders how many other references to Lewis there are in the unpublished letters of J.R. Tolkien that maybe someday all of them will be published and people will get to to dive into that and learn a good deal more about Tolkien and perhaps more about Lewis himself as well. Hmm. Well, before we talk about chronologically Lewis, uh, let's let's just speak for a few more minutes about the latest book, which you mentioned at the beginning, The Lion That Roared. Uh, would you mind just telling us a little bit more about that? Yes. Uh, a couple of years ago, my daughter was reading a book to one of her children, and she made the comment, well, you know, Grandpa has written books too. Jackson was about eight. Oh, I want to read one of Grandpa's books. And she said, well, Grandpa's <laughs> books are for adults, really. I don't think you would enjoy reading something that he has written. And she then got to thinking and she wrote to me and she said, have you ever thought about writing a children's book? And at that point, I had not. And I, I sort of brushed it off. But I got to thinking and then I wrote a paragraph thinking about Narnia and how I could write something like Narnia, but not really Narnian. And so I wrote a paragraph and sent it to her. And I said, yeah, what do you think? Would this be a good start? And 
But one thing led to another, and along the way I decided she's a pretty good writer herself. She's a musician, really, does a lot of composition and arranging of music. But she she's good at writing. She was her high school valedictorian, straight-A student, sharp mind, and so she agreed to join me in the project. We ended up writing a book that's about half the length of one of the Chronicles of Narnia, and we invented an imaginary land called Harmonia, where dogs and cats don't get along with one another, (laughs) and the animosity between these talking animals, of course, uh, where the the animosity is growing to the point where it's bordering an all-out war. And so there is a talking dog that is on their television screen one day as they're watching television, and the dog talks to my three grandkids, basically, the <laughs> characters in the story, and their cat is too, who unbeknownst to them ends up being a talking cat, as you might imagine. I didn't name the cat Ginger uh, after the last <laughs> battle. In fact, that would probably get me in trouble with the Lewis Company, but we simply used the name of the cat that they have. Uh, their cat is Whiskers, and Micah, Lily, and Jackson are the three characters, and they get drawn into the land of Harmonia through a flat screen TV, much like, um, let's see, who was it? Eustace, Lucy, and Edmund. Eustace, yeah, get drawn into Narnia for the Voyage of the Dawn Treader through a painting on the wall. And so they have adventures there, and Whiskers proves to be very valuable in convincing the cats that they need to make peace with the dogs and to offer benefits to one another and but uh, the there are there are some bad guys in the story the, the larger cats um, anybody that thinks about it well you've got wolves that are pretty big and can be mean but alongside of a, a lion or a panther or a tiger wouldn't be much of a match so the lion the not the lions there are no lions in Narnia except one that shows up towards the end of the story and roars in a massive sort of way to scare away the, the bad cats. <laughs> so anyway, the uh, there is that point in the story where the, the big bad cats are about to attack the, the three children and some of their compatriots, but they, uh, they ambush them at a place called Stonegate Pass. But uh, as they're about to attack, there's this massive roar that makes the ground tremble underneath them and scares all the cats away. Anyway, at the end of the story, they all live happily ever after, and the three children (laughs) and their cat get to return to Cincinnati, Ohio, which is where they're from, and where my daughter and her husband and three children live with their cat, who, sad to say, can't really talk, but has (laughs) certain semi-human characteristics. Like most cats, uh, whiskers doesn't exactly let you know that she loves you, but she does tolerate you from time to time. So, a typical cat. And I throw in a lot of um, cat humor. Uh, it's raining cats and dogs, for instance, or so-and-so is a scaredy cat. And I, I throw in uh, about a dozen of those. And there's a rabidash moment in the story towards the end and a few other things that keep the, the reader guessing. But I hope that Families that have children that have read all the Chronicles of Narnia and wish there were more. And here we have to invoke the name of Michael Ward and his 
theory about why there are seven Chronicles of Narnia, not less or more than seven. So we're uh, offering not exact, not an eighth Chronicle of Narnia, but for those that wish there were more, here's something in the tradition of, I like to say in the tradition of the Chronicles of Narnia rather than another Narnian Chronicle. And I did sign off with the Lewis Company. I wrote to them about this, about my plan. I told them I wasn't quoting anything from Lewis. I wasn't using any characters' names. I wasn't using Aslan or anyone else from any of the Chronicles of Narnia. They wrote back and said, it's, it's okay. We're not going to file suit against you or threaten anything. <laughs> they were. It's the kind of thing that you want to clear in advance. It's not a place where that old rubric that it's easier to ask for forgiveness than to get permission applies. Mm -hmm. That would potentially be a very serious mistake if I operated that way. <laughs> so anyway, they signed off on it and it's available really only at lulu.com. So it's a print on demand book and it hasn't sold widely, but uh, a few dozen, co I haven't checked lately, maybe up to a hundred copies and some people have enjoyed it. And certainly my grandkids have read it. So they kind of like the idea that they're, <laughs> they are actual characters in a book that their mother also helped to write. And that their grandfather can actually write a book that's interesting. <laughs> yes, one that children can actually read and understand. Well, I actually think that might make a, a fun uh, patron reading group. So I might suggest that to our patron supporters. Please do. Well, there's one last topic I'd like to address before we wrap things up. Can you please tell us more about Chronologically Lewis? What is it? Where did it come from? How does it help? It's a 1,300-page database on the life of C.S. Lewis and his brother that chronicles everything that Lewis did or said as far as we know, any and every written record that refers to something that Lewis did or said on a specific day during his lifetime. Uh, I have searched them out. I started this resource in 2004, and I was in the Wade Center reading Peter Skockel's book, Imagination and the Arts in C.S. Lewis, subtitled Journeying to Narnia and Other Worlds. Uh, English professor from Hope College. I've read a couple of his books and really appreciated them. We had never met, but while I was reading his book, he walked into the reading room. <laughs> so we didn't meet before, haven't met since. And I thought I'd ask him, has anybody ever pulled together all of the information that we have about Lewis from his letters, from his diary, from Warren's diaries and letters, from uh, every available source? And there are more than 200 sources that I've accessed that are all listed at the end of this database, I guess you could call it. At the end of it, if you if people want to see what my resources are, I've done a lot of footnoting in the document, but I haven't footnoted everything because if I footnoted every letter, every reference from the Lewis papers or Warren's diary, I'd probably have three or four times the <laughs> number of footnotes that I have, and I, and I have more than 4,000 footnotes. But I think probably the best recommendation shows up on the homepage of my website comes from Dieta Pavlak Blyer, who's mm -hmm. at Azusa Pacific University, and she calls Chronologically Lewis the single most important resource in Lewis scholarship. 
and not only have it bookmarked, I usually have that tab open. So she's been a, a friend from a distance and a very well-known Lewis scholar. And so since I met Peter Skockel, he said he didn't know of anything like that. I decided there needed to be a resource like that. And so I started working on it, pulling things together. Uh, we're at about 730,000 words, a little over 1,335 pages, 4,600 footnotes. Last time I looked, 211 resources. And it's a Word document that people can download if they want to. I'm concerned that this resource be available for many, many years long after I'm gone. And for me to keep that as kind of proprietary information that I'm only going to let people use if they pay me some money, I think that would be a sad approach to scholarship. So if you want to know the date that the line, The Witch of the Wardrobe, was published for the very first time in the UK, you can search for that term. You can download this document as a Word document and use the control find feature in Word and search for that book, every book of Lewis's, every uh, degree, every person that he knows. And you might not be surprised at all to know that this resource was a major reason why I was able to write No Ordinary People because every reference to Arthur C. Clarke, I was able to look up and discover when Clark is mentioned in any of Lewis's writings. Likewise, every other one of the chapters in the book relies significantly upon this chronology. So that's basically the summary of what I have to offer there. There are a few uh, other little tidbits here. I mean, I, I put everything in there that I can possibly discover from the lives of Lewis and his brother. And there are some things that probably won't get an awful lot of attention. Some of Warren's military career, although Don King has recently released a biography of Warren Lewis for the very first time, and he, he used chronologically Lewis. But uh, I don't know if you know this or not, David, but just a couple of days ago on August 25th, we should have celebrated the 98th anniversary of C.S. Lewis and Maureen Moore interviewing in a field while on holiday two black pigs. Yes, yes, Maureen and Jack interviewed two black pigs who were asleep in the field, calls them uh, looking more like big leather bottles with curiously shaped stoppers, and they grunted and the whole body shook when they grunted, and uh, he tickled one with his foot. And anyway, he, he, so we put things in there that are relevant and things that are irrelevant. And it's really not for me to judge whether some particular detail is relevant or not. If it happened in Lewis's life and I discover it, I will put it there. And that's what this chronology is about. I, I really want it to be a resource for Lewis scholars to take advantage of. And if they if they want to confirm when Lewis did or said some particular thing, they should be able to find it there with the searchable feature, and then they can download uh, the latest version of it. Now all we need is somebody to do this for all of the other inklings, just to fill in all of the other gaps. <laughs> well, yes, uh, I'm still working on this. In fact, there's a German philosopher by the name of Norbert Feinendagen who recently sent me a bunch of internet-discovered snippets of book reviews that were published in newspapers and magazines in the UK during Lewis's lifetime. And I'm gradually working through 
several hundred of those. In fact, in those PDF files that he sent me, I discovered that in Billy Graham's autobiography, he mentions the specific day that he met C.S. Lewis in Cambridge. And so I was able to, thanks to Graham's biography, I was able to nail down the time and place and location and roughly how long it lasted and any other interesting details about that meeting. I heard about it and I wasn't sure if it was uh, an urban legend or if it really did happen and found out that it really did happen. And Lewis just didn't say a whole lot about it, but Graham certainly did. He must have been impressed by Lewis upon meeting him. <laughs> and Lewis, as you, your listeners and you probably well know, was very interested in the sharing of the gospel and people coming to faith and the work of evangelism. And that's really why I got into Lewis in the first place, because I have a love for sharing the gospel, the most important message that's ever been written down and promoted. And Lewis, as a, a literary evangelist, helps us to get the message out because a very, very sharp mind, a, an imaginative mind, as well as a very penetrating philosophical mind. Which ought to take me to uh, just to mention that two other people, Josiah Peterson and Rob Coons. Rob is a University of Texas philosopher. The three of us are working on an article that should come out in Seinsucht in the next year or so on how to teach the abolition of man. Like that hideous strength, it's a difficult book, difficult to understand. And how do you go about teaching it? I think it has scared a lot of people off from (laughs) reading it or teaching it because it is difficult. So those two guys especially are helping me to understand the abolition of man. And and all three of us are working together on techniques that a teacher could use at the secondary level or the collegiate level to teach this really important book, which has a, a message about objective values that our world really needs today where you have a lot of people who think they are one thing and like to identify in a particular way. Uh, even if science says you're not that, you're, you're what God made you to be, uh, they'd like to identify as, well, maybe you and I could identify as homeless people with no income for income tax purposes, but billionaires, whenever it is we want <laughs> to get into some kind of an exclusive club for a high-priced dinner. <laughs> Dr. Coons is great. He came on the show to talk about uh, Owen Barfield's influence on Tolkien. Uh, I think it was two seasons ago. In my retirement, I already have a plan. I'm a young man. At least I, keep, I keep saying, telling myself I'm a young man, but I feel older every day. Uh, but my plan for my retirement is to try and set up a website to index Lewis's works, because by that time, most of them should be back in the public domain barring any tricksy lawyery things that happen to keep it protected, at least in the United States. And uh, when I first came across your Chronologically Lewis, I thought, oh, this would be a great thing to integrate into that website. So that when you search for a Lewis text, not only do you get the text and where it's from, but you get to find out what was Lewis doing during the time that he was writing this, what was happening during publication, all that sort of thing. That was a fascinating topic for me. I I wanted to see how things happening in England at the time Lewis was writing this or that informed his decisions about what to write and and how his writing reflected a response to what was going on in higher education at the war. We know about the 
Second World War being kind of the backdrop for the line, the witch in the wardrobe. So there's so many connections between what's going on in, in England at the time and, and in other parts of the world and what he actually wrote. Yeah. And also how, he, how the books written around the same time are also very much looking at the same sorts of topics. So the Screwtape Letters, Preface to Paradise Lost, Paralandra, you know, they're all dealing with the question of temptation and the fall. I do have an essay on my website called, I think the title is The Intellectual History of Oxford and Cambridge During the Lewis Years. And it was an initial attempt to write a book that reflected the culture out of which Lewis wrote the things that he wrote. It ended up being a bit ponderous. Publishers weren't interested in it, but it's still there for those that have an interest and want to download it and take a look at it and perhaps use it for something that they're working on related to the life and writings of C.S. Lewis. Wonderful. Well, next season, we're going to be going through Letters to American Lady, Lewis's Latin Letters, and Letters to Children. So we're going to be leaning quite heavily on Chronologically Lewis to find out what was happening at the time when he was writing each of these letters. Very good. Please do. Dr. Heck, thank you so much for coming on the show. You're very welcome. It's been a pleasure. As the landlord rings the bell for final drinks, can you please tell us where people can go to find out more about you and your work? There is a Wikipedia article that gives the basics of my life and writings. You can also go to my website, although joelheck.com is really more about Lewis than it is about me. But I guess I would recommend that Wikipedia article. And just look up Joel D. Heck on Wikipedia and you should get the basics. It includes all the, the books that I've written. And if anybody wants to know more specifics about the various articles I've written about Lewis, they ought to email me at joelheck2 at gmail.com. And if anybody can track down Joel Heck 1, send him my way. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Thanks again to Dr. Joel Heck for coming on the show. Thanks to our audio engineers, Taylor and Sarah. Thanks to our top tier supporters, Alex James, Matt1, Matt2, Erica, Marvin, Joel, Amanda, Thomas, Bud, Shane, Kay, Paul, Kimberly, Gillis, Gary, Stephen, Kelly, Chris, John, James, Kate, Peter, David, Angela, and Rowdy. We pray for all of our listeners every Tuesday, including the prayer requests from our Slack channel. Thank you all so much for listening. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please share it on social media and go to Chronologically Lewis and find out what Lewis was doing on the day that you listened to this episode. And please join us next time when we'll continue going further up and further in. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs>